Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. No one living within earshot of the enclosed yard at 29 Hanbury Street reports hearing anything particularly untoward in the night. No scuffle, no cries, no screams. A neighbour thinks he hears someone say, no. But when residents awake on Saturday, September 8th, they catch sight of Annie Chapman's body. A local tradesman goes to fetch a canvas sheet to throw over Annie and her horrific wounds. When he returns, the police have arrived and a crowd has gathered. It's that woman who sells her crochet work at the market. Thank you very much. The gentlemen of the press are not far behind. A painful sensation was created all over London today when it was known that early this morning another shocking murder was perpetrated. Again, the victim is a woman. Again, there has been a fearful mutilation of the body. Journalists swarm Whitechapel. And soon, the grim details of Annie's death are splashed across newspapers hundreds, even thousands of miles away. The head of Annie Chapman had been nearly severed from her body by one stroke of a sharp knife. And her mangled remains had been disposed about her in a way that suggested a delight in the slaughter for the slaughter's sake. Panic grips the East End, and it spreads. A murderer is on the loose. And he's not just roaming Whitechapel. In print, he lurks in the homes of readers everywhere. But are they getting the facts? Or fiction? I'm Hallie Rubenholt. You're listening to Bad Women, The Ripper Retold. A series about the real lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper. And how we got their stories so wrong. One side money plenty And friends tooth by the score 
Annie Chapman's life is a tragedy. Interludes of hope and good fortune were crushed by the loss of her father to suicide, her siblings and children to sickness, and her husband and home to the shame of addiction. Blighted by alcoholism, Annie was penniless, alone, and sick with tuberculosis when she curled up in a Whitechapel yard. That was where Jack the Ripper found her. There is nothing in Annie's story that might explain what happened after her body was discovered. A police officer, writing up his initial report, listed her occupation as, guess what, prostitute. The police, who were inclined to call almost any woman out alone at night a prostitute, already had a theory. The Whitechapel murders were being committed either by a gang that was extorting money from prostitutes or by a lone killer on a murderous campaign to punish them. In a grimly predictable move, they immediately linked Annie Chapman with the sex trade. Across the Atlantic, the New York Times even took up the story. The latest murder is exactly like its predecessor. The victim was a woman streetwalker of the lowest class. Annie's murder came right on the heels of Polly Nichols' death. These similar killings whipped the papers into a frenzy. The blood of the murdered women in the East End still cries for vengeance. If the murderer is still at large, and if, as there is every reason to suppose, he is a maniac, we may look for fresh deeds of blood at his hands. As the press reports multiplied, so too did theories about the murderer's identity. According to coverage of the autopsy, the killer had removed Annie's womb and part of her bladder, so some were certain that he had to be an expert with a knife. A shadowy figure called Leather Apron, a slipper maker, became the prime suspect. Leather workers, after all, used wickedly sharp knives to ply their trade, and a leather apron had supposedly been found in the yard near Annie's body. One newspaper gave the following description of him. He is five feet four or five inches in height. He's thick set and has an unusually thick neck. His hair is black and closely clipped his age being about 38 or 40. He has a small black moustache. The distinguishing feature of his costume is a leather apron, which he always wears and from which he gets his nickname. His expression is sinister. His eyes are small and glittering. His lips are usually parted in a grin, which is not only not reassuring, but excessively repellent. He's a slipper maker by trade, but does not work. His business is blackmailing women late at night. He has never cut anybody, so far as is known, but always carries a leather knife. Local leather worker John Pizer was front and centre in the leather apron theory. According to the Penny Illustrated paper, Pizer was arrested and then released. He later gave a full account of his whereabouts at the time of both Annie and Polly's murders to the coroner, with a long list of those able to back his version of events. It is only fair to say that the witnesses' statements can be corroborated. 
the press swiftly backtracked on the significance of that leather apron discovery. A large knife stained with blood and a leather apron, it was at first reported, were discovered near the body. But this is not so. There was, it's true, an apron, but that belonged to a young man who lives in the house and uses it in his work. The apron theory had been a tempting one. It played to powerful Victorian prejudices that a Jewish tradesman was bound to be behind the murders. Readers, sitting at home in their parlours, were soon coming up with their own replacement theories and writing into the papers to share them. Armchair detectives, it turns out, aren't just a modern phenomenon. I think that the murderer is not of the class of which leather apron belongs, but is of the upper class of society. Sir, I would suggest that the police should at once find out the whereabouts of all cases of homicidal mania, which may have been discharged as cured from metropolitan asylums during the last two years. The slaughter ground of the East End abounds with lodging houses, each victim of the last six months being an inhabitant of one or other, and their murderer is probably at this moment sheltered in this Alsatia of the East. The murderer is a leather worker. He's a rich man or an artist. He's a ruffian. He's an escaped lunatic. He's a doctor. He's a foreigner, an outsider, a Jew. For some, whoever he was, he was doing good work by murdering prostitutes, like a surgeon cutting out necrotic tissue. To the editor of The Times. Sir, the horror and excitement caused by the murder of the Whitechapel outcasts imply a universal belief that they had a right to life. If they had, then they had the further right to hire shelter from the bitterness of the English night. If they had no such right, then it was, on the whole, a good thing that they fell in with an unknown surgical genius. He, at all events, has made his contribution towards solving the problem of clearing the East End of its vicious inhabitants. I'm not actually interested in Jack the Ripper's identity. I never have been. But it's hard to research the lives of these women without coming across all of these theories. I wondered about the primary evidence that was out there. What gave rise to all of these theories? It had to be something incredible, right? So I looked, and I looked, and I found nothing. Nothing credible, that is. The official transcripts of what was said at Annie's inquest, as well as most of the police documentation, hasn't survived. Pretty much everything we think we know today about Annie Chapman's time in Whitechapel and about her murder is drawn from the newspapers. Can we actually trust anything they say? Or was it all fake news? Let's start with some of the most simple details that the press got wrong. In The Observer and the Pall Mall Gazette, that friend of Annie Chapman's from Whitechapel, Amelia Palmer, is misnamed as Amelia Farmer. She's quoted as saying that Annie was not in the habit of frequenting the streets. Instead, Annie eked out a living by selling flowers, matches, and decorative fabric covers for chairs. By contrast, the Star newspaper quotes Amelia as saying quite the opposite. I am afraid the deceased used to earn her living partly on the streets. And in the Daily News, Amelia says Annie is out late sometimes. We may see this as a euphemism for prostitution, or we may not. There are many reasons for such disparities in reporting in 1888, including physical distance between reporters and their subjects. 
There's a lot of different ways that news travels in the 19th century. There are many hundreds of newspapers just in England alone. Every town has its own newspapers and usually several newspapers. What obviously they can't do is have a journalist in every location. Historian Bob Nicholson is an expert in 19th century journalism. Newspapers across the world were hungry to report on the Ripper case. But without their own journalists on the ground in Whitechapel... They will clip directly from other newspapers. That's why, you know, cut and paste, as we now think of it on computers, is describing a literal historical practice done with scissors and glue. And that's where you see word for word the same things appearing in newspapers on opposite sides of the country because they're part of this network of news. Provincial editors had no way to query or fact-check these reports. This helped inaccuracy blossom and spread. They are taking it on trust. In much the same way that we do when we see things online now, and it's so easy for misinformation to spread when things go viral or move around the internet, it's exactly the same in the 19th century. Once that context, that connection with the original source is gone, how do we know? By 1888, the electric telegraph was being used to transmit information all over Britain, the empire and beyond. As a result, the Whitechapel murders became a shared experience for millions. It's not just something that's happening in London and then trickles down many weeks later to the rest of the country. It's almost live. It's almost as rapid as we would experience with the internet or with 24-hour news. There are telegraph cables under the Atlantic Ocean, too, which means that the New York Times could report on Annie Chapman's murder the day after her body was found. All day long, Whitechapel has been wild with excitement. The detectives have no clue. The London police force is probably the stupidest in the world. This technology was revolutionary. Distant events were suddenly much closer, the world smaller. When Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, people in Britain were unaware of his death until a ship brought the news. Fast forward to Andrew Garfield's shooting in 1881, and journalists were telegraphing hourly updates across the ocean. Within the space of 15 years, we go from America being a week and a half away to a point where you can feel the pulse of a dying president in the Times every couple of hours. But rapid coverage of the Whitechapel murders also meant feverish, frenzied coverage. Every journalist was searching for a unique angle on the story. At this point, they've got to file that copy. They've got to get that story in within hours. Every day, you've got to sort of feed the beast. The press needs a new story. It needs another fact. It needs another theory. Some journalists were cross-referencing and corroborating their facts, but some were simply intent on filing the story that would sell, creating the perfect environment for rumours, guesswork and mistakes to creep in. And all of this means that these newspapers simply cannot offer us a perfect representation of the events of 1888. The Ripper Retold will return shortly. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of tight-knit brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. 
AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Marketplace 4 and competition among newspapers also helps to explain the coverage of the Whitechapel murders. The 1880s was the dawn of what, at the time, was described as the new journalism. Growing literacy rates and improved printing technologies had given rise to a new mass-reading public in Britain. It was also cheaper to produce newspapers. The government stopped taxing them, which meant you could buy a paper for a penny, placing them within most people's reach. And that public was clamouring for news. You add all that stuff together, and it basically amounts to an enormous gold rush of people trying to get in on this new market, trying to be the ones who are going to sell a paper. And there are an astronomical number of papers in Britain at this time, in every town. And a lot of them are incredibly short-lived. They'll last for a couple of weeks and then die. They're a bit like, you know, blogs or podcasts or all sorts of other things now. Everybody's rushing in to get into that market, and some of them last, some of them make a hit. Others, you know, wither away straight away. If you were in London in 1888 and you walked up to a newsstand, you would see dozens of papers, all covering the same story. Publishers had to compete. For some newspapers, like The Times, that all-important selling point was accuracy. For others, it was sensationalism. The Times has been around since the, you know, the 1780s by this point. Why do people buy something else instead? Well, it's because it's more entertaining. It's because it represents their politics. When you've got that kind of public hysteria around the Whitechapel murders where everybody's clamouring for information, that intensifies. You've got to be the paper that has that latest discovery. You don't have that, somebody else will. In some cases, what filled the column inches was pure invention. Lurid illustrations were often given prominence over words. You could now illustrate a knife plunging into someone's chest or draw the bodies of these women and print them on the front page. The most famous example of this was the Illustrated Police News, a lowbrow paper that served up extended and breathless coverage of crime. So they basically said, we know people like reading about crimes, let's make an entire paper out of it. And the front page of the police news was packed with lurid illustrations of whatever had been going on in the world of crime. That front page would be pasted in shop windows, and crowds would gather to gawk at the images. At one point, the Illustrated Police News does a before and after of Annie Chapman's face. That is, before and after her murder. And even though no one really knew what the Ripper looked like, the paper also depicts suspects, some of them mustachioed and wearing bowler hats, others hook-nosed and bearded. An enormous amount of the paper's content was pure fabrication. They covered the Whitechapel murders every week for months. And a lot of the images, actually, that you will now find if you search for images linked to the case come from that newspaper. How we imagine the Whitechapel murders now 
has been shaped in an enduring way by those incredibly lurid, sensational illustrations that they produced. Papers such as the Police News had their critics, even in 1888. Some in the establishment were convinced it was a corrupting force that glamorised violence and agitated legions of new readers. A lot of the things that we now see as being very modern, anxieties over how information spreads, who has access to it, who gets to have a public platform, all of those things are being explored and played out in the 19th century too. What happens if you live in a society where suddenly millions of people are reading who weren't reading before? A lot of these people now have the vote who didn't have it before. And just like now, we might be worried about the influence of Facebook. How is that shaping our elections? In the 1880s, people are also worried about how journalism might be changing the fabric of British politics and culture because suddenly it's reaching people in a whole new way. Some newspaper owners relish the opportunity not just to make profits, but to push their own moral and social agendas. One pioneer of new journalism, W.T. Stead, talked about using newspapers to channel the steam of public opinion and thereby force social change. Although readership was opening up in the 1880s, newspapers still tended to reflect middle-class values and agendas. Reporters were generally drawn from society's more respectable rungs and they brought their class prejudices along with them. This is not the view of people who've lived in Whitechapel, who understand it, who are part of that community. These are papers from the West End, journalists who had stable homes, a good education, they're literate, they're working, and they're reporting on the lives of people who haven't had those opportunities. At all times, one who strolls through this quarter of town, especially by night, must feel that below his ken are the awful deeps of an ocean teeming with life, but enshrouded in impenetrable mystery. As he catches here and there a glimpse of a face under the flickering, uncertain light of a lamp, the face perhaps of some woman, bloated by drink and distorted by passion, he may get a momentary shuddering sense of what humanity may sink to when life is lived apart from the sweet, health-giving influences of fields and flowers, of art and music and books and travel, an intercourse with the educated and the cultured. And in many cases, these are people who would ordinarily never go to Whitechapel. They would never go east. It is described in so many of these reports as if it's a foreign country. The comparison that Victorian reporters often make in their language is with deepest, darkest Africa. They see it as almost this kind of imperial frontier, another place inhabited by another people. The Whitechapel of the newspapers is a one-dimensional portrait, a place of social danger and destitution. But while many people in Whitechapel were poor and had no fixed address, others had permanent homes and opened businesses and restaurants. The sun shined in Whitechapel occasionally, right? People fell in love. They had all sorts of rich and complex lives. But in the press, it's depicted as just a place that's dangerous and a danger that might spill out into somewhere else. It's worth noting that these weren't the first murders in Whitechapel to be reported in the press. Previous stabbings, poisonings and beatings were retold with relish. One paper even describes the Ripper killings as a culmination of horrors. Jack the Ripper simply cemented Whitechapel in the popular imagination as the archetypal hotbed of crime, murder and disease. When the first journalists arrived to report on the Whitechapel murders, they already knew the type of women they were likely to encounter there. They were almost certain to meet the fallen woman who could be found in the popular fiction of the era in the books of Elizabeth Gaskell, Charles Dickens and George Eliot. All it takes is for a woman to slip up in some kind of way. 
to have an affair or to, you know, to do anything that steps outside the boundaries of respectable living, she ends up dead. In all of these things, in melodramatic paintings, in poetry, in stories, either her guilt drives her to throw herself off a bridge or, you know, her continual sort of bad decision-making, as they would put it, leads her into a situation where she might be murdered. By the time the Whitechapel murders happen, people know this narrative. They've seen it a hundred times. Journalists naturally drew on these stereotypes to explain the deaths of the Ripper victims. These women were doubly outcast, doubly fallen. Not only were they out alone at night, rather than by the hearth with a husband, they had also been exiled to hellish Whitechapel, a place beyond the pale. Crucially, these tropes fit the needs and the agendas of newspaper proprietors. They could tease these events into narratives that would channel the steam of public opinion and force politicians to act. If you're interested in social reform, or if you're interested in trying to rescue sex workers, all of this plays into that. And the actual lived reality of these women becomes secondary to the kind of symbolic role they play in explaining the wider social problems of the time. Readers were also accustomed to murder reports that followed a set routine. The discovery of a crime was followed by the apprehension of the criminal. Then there was a trial, and then an execution. Everything would be neatly wrapped up. What was quite different about the Whitechapel murders, of course, famously, is that we don't know who committed them, whether it was one person, multiple people, whether it was all the same person, we don't know. It's a void, it's a silence. And into it flooded all of the things that Victorian society was worried about. Their fears, their anxieties, their politics, it fills that gap. It's a blank canvas on which they can paint all of these different priorities, anxieties, thoughts and feelings. So whether it's about anxieties about immigration in the East End, now you can speculate. Could he be Jewish? Maybe he could be a doctor. What if he's an upper class man? It leaves this incredibly open space for people to speculate. In their speculation, journalists and their readers reveal truths not about Annie Chapman, but about themselves their own prejudices, obsessions, predilections and fears. There are two things in parallel here. We have the reality of the Whitechapel murders and the reality of the lives that these women lived and what happened to them. And then we have something else happening in parallel, which is Jack the Ripper. If you need any more convincing that the Ripper was a myth spawned by the Victorian press, then look no further than the origin of that immortal moniker. In the wake of Annie's death, a letter written in blood-red ink arrived at London's Central News Agency. In faltering sentences, it mocked the police investigation. The arrest and release of John Pizer, the leather apron suspect, prompted particular mirth. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. The author knew Pizer was innocent because the author said that he was the killer. Grand work the last job was. It was signed by Jack the Ripper. The note was handed to Scotland Yard, but also swiftly published in the papers. The letter was boastful, graphic and callous. It was also, apparently, a hoax. A journalistic fabrication to keep the story going and sell more papers. But the catchy name of Jack the Ripper stuck, as did the letter's neat encapsulation of the murders. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them. The Ripper Retold will be back in just a moment. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. 
They turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Somehow, the stories told in the newspapers of 1888, with all of their competing, contradictory, and confusing quotes, have, over time, hardened into the facts of the case. With no proper evidence from the case files, deeply flawed newspaper reports are the basis of all kinds of theories. Jack the Ripper was a German sailor, a royal doctor, a post-impressionist painter, a Polish barber. An absence of reliable evidence from primary sources has left gaps, and colourful invention has rushed in to fill these empty spaces. It's not just cranks who are pumping out these theories. Foremost among Ripper sleuths is the crime writer Patricia Cornwell, the creator of the forensic genius Kay Scarpetta. Her website says she sold over 100 million books. She also has her own pet theory about Jack the Ripper's identity. The Ripper, says Patricia, was none other than German-born painter Walter Sickert. And her evidence includes Sickert's own paintings, which depict violence against women. Patricia also says she spent roughly $7 million on her quest to solve the Ripper case. I'm not sure what this endless naming of suspects really achieves. In an effort to get my head around it, I sat down to watch a documentary that Patricia made back in 2002, Patricia Cornwell Stalking the Ripper. It interweaves scenes of her real-life investigation of Sickert with dramatization of the Whitechapel killings. One particularly gruesome scene focuses on the fifth victim, Mary Jane Kelly. So we've got a reenactment of a man walking down um, a dirty East End lane with lots of women selling their bodies. A laughing woman opening the door to her one room. This is Mary Jane Kelly lighting a candle. And the Ripper takes off his cloak and reveals himself. Oh, oh dear. Lots of blood, lots of stabbing, candle flickers, the moon. Patricia is on a mission to bring justice to Jack the Ripper's victims. The only way she knows how to do that, she says, 
is to identify the person that committed these murders. At one point, she reconstructs what she believes would have been the action of the Ripper's blade as it plunged through his victim's clothing. She does this on a kitchen table with sides of meat, layers of cloth, and a knife. And I'm going to cut open a little bit here. Oh my God! Gross out everybody. I'll stick a little bit of soft tissue, softer tissue in here. And we'll put something yucky in here like this. Okay, now what we're going to do is, she had on about six layers of clothing. So oh my God, this is insane. And all of these are natural fibers because they did not use oh synthetic. My, oh my God, this is... This is what shocked me. She's piling meat on a table and then putting clothes over it. And she's going to stab through it. This is all through clothing. If this person cut through clothing as opposed to ripping through it... What is this telling us? This is telling us nothing. What are we learning from this? If I'm really honest, Patricia's documentary left me feeling quite confused. To me, this quest for justice, with its focus on blood and dead bodies, didn't seem to offer the victims any sort of dignity. Each woman was so much more than a stack of meat, and surely justice for each woman lies in knowing who she truly was. That documentary is roughly 20 years old. Since its release, Patricia has published a new book on Walter Sickert, but perhaps her position on justice for these victims has changed over time. Whenever Patricia talks about the Ripper, the world listens. A plan was forming in my mind, so I rang my producer, Alice. She's clearly interested in the victims and sees herself as being a kind of a voice for them. It's just you're approaching it from very different angles. I just disagree with her, and I respect her as a person. I don't understand. I mean, what this comes down to is I really, really don't understand why she's taking this position on Jack the Ripper, what logic she's using. I don't understand the obsession. Does this documentary make you interested in talking to her? I want to know what justice really means and her perception. And I would also really like to see if I could help change her mind or even if she'd be interested in meeting me halfway and maybe direct some of her efforts towards some sort of restorative justice for the victims in other ways, some sort of interest in what the victim's legacy is, because that is something we can do. That is actionable today. In 1888, newspapermen hurriedly set down a version of the Whitechapel murders that was full of inaccuracies. But pick up a newspaper today, and you'll still read the same old recycled mistakes. Whenever Patricia Cornwell tells journalists she's closer to cracking the case, the victims are always described in a way which would have been totally familiar to a Victorian reader. If that's ever going to change, it will require the help of people like Patricia. So, I've decided I need to track her down. Bad Women, The Ripper Retold is brought to you by Pushkin Industries and me, Hallie Rubenhold, and is based on my book, The Five. It was produced and co-written by Ryan Dilley and Alice Fines, with help from Pete Norton. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. You also heard the voice talents of Saul Boyer, Melanie Guttridge, Gemma Saunders and Rufus Wright. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Mia LaBelle, 
Jacob Weisberg, Jen Guerra, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, and Daniela Lacan. With special thanks to my agents, Sarah Ballard and Ellie Karen. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels. And do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.